Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined for today's show by Yasha Monk. Yasha is a lecturer in Harvard. He's a senior fellow at New America. He's also a columnist with uh, Slate.com and he's host of an excellent podcast himself called The Good Fight, which is about the rise of populism and authoritarianism across the United States, Europe and indeed elsewhere. I was talking to Yasha about his new book, which is called The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And I asked him first of all about the title. Yasha Monk, you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast. Could I ask you first about the, the title of your book for people who don't know your work or your podcast? The People versus Democracy seems paradoxical as a title on the face of it. it. It does. I mean, the idea here is twofold. First of all, that what we've seen for a long time as I show in my research uh, that's shown in the book um, and that I originally did with my colleague Roberto Foa is that more and more people are getting so fed up with politics, feel like the system is failing to deliver to such an extent that they're actually starting to be critical, not just of this or that government, but of democratic institutions themselves. So when you look at the United States, for example, among older Americans, um, over two thirds say it's absolutely essential to them to live in a democracy. Among younger Americans born since 1980, less than one third do. Um, in many European countries, more and more people are coming to be open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy. So when you ask people in the United Kingdom, in France, in Germany, whether they like the idea of a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament or elections, uh, that figure has actually doubled over the past couple of decades. It's now 50% in the United Kingdom and in, and in France. So that's the first sense. But, but the second sense, which is just as important, is as a description of you know, what the nature of a populist threat to democracy really is. Um, When we think about democracies perishing, it's tempting to think of some of the most salient and dramatic examples, like, say, the rise of fascists across Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. But most of the time when democracies die, uh, it's actually for slightly more subtle reasons. It's because populists claim that they alone stand for the people and we have to vote for them because they actually are more democratic than everybody else. But then, as we're seeing at the moment in Hungary, for example, they slowly concentrate so much power and tar everybody who disagrees with them as so illegitimate that they become a real danger to democracy themselves. There's an awful lot in what you've just said there, and I might come back to asking why this this faith in democracy is 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 seeping away. But I mean, actually, here in Ireland, we're not unused to the idea that democracy in itself does not guarantee rights. We had a, a majoritarian local government in Northern Ireland which denied rights to some some members of that society for many years. You, you very often dig into this 
possible, you know, tension between these two these two words, liberal and democracy. Viktor Orban in Hungary, of course, claims to be establishing an illiberal democracy, and we think we we think we understand some of these impulses which are driving right wing authoritarians, in particular, to take the liberalism out of democracy. But I'm particularly interested in when you write about liberalism without democracy, sort of the opposite of that. What are the examples of liberalism without democracy? Yeah, so, um, you know, as you're pointing out, there's really two core political values we have. There's two core things that our political system tries to give citizens. One of those is democracy, which literally just means the rule of a demos, rule of a people. So it means translating popular views into public policies. But the other is individual rights, uh, is individual freedom, that we actually get to determine um, how we lead our lives. Um, and these two things can come into conflict. They come into conflict when a majority becomes oppressive and says, we don't like this particular minority and we're going to tell them how to live. But it can also um, become oppressive in a certain way because uh, actually the system is relatively good at respecting certain uh, kinds of rights, including minority rights. There is the rule of law, there is the separation of powers. But our politics also has become less and less responsive to what people actually want. And, and I argue that both uh, in the United States and in many parts of uh, Western Europe and beyond, that's been going on for quite a while. So we see the rise of money in politics, the revolving door between lobbyists and legislators, um, the way in which uh, politicians have in many countries become a little bit of a class apart that doesn't have that much contact with ordinary constituents. Um, and all of that makes the kind of institutions like parliaments that are meant to represent our views less responsive. At the same time, you also see the rise of a whole set of technocratic and expert-led institutions that often do a pretty good job in one way or another, but also take a lot of political issues out of democratic contestation. So when you think of the rise of increasingly important, powerful and independent central banks, when you think of a growing role of courts, when you think of independent bureaucratic agencies, whether it's something like the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States or something like the European Commission uh, on our continent, when you think of trade treaties, international organizations, all of those things taken together uh, actually mean that there's a good reason why ordinary citizens say, you know what, in the end, it doesn't really matter so much what I think and what I do the most important decisions are taken by these complicated institutions on which I don't really have a direct impact. How much of this is due to the, I suppose, the dominant political narrative of the last 30 years or thereabouts, the the, the, the Reagan and Thatcher uh, revolution, what some call neoliberalism in the 1980s, the collapse of communism at the start of the 1990s. The I know you've t- talked to Francis Fukuyama, but that sense since much debunked of of the end of history, that the new dispensation that we all had to get on board with, were we formerly, whether we, we were formerly social democrats, Christian democrats, communists or whatever, is is free market capitalism and liberal democracy. But that the reality then for people in election after election in many, many countries was they found that no matter who they chose to be their government, the decisions that were made and the reasons for those decisions remained the same, regardless of what voting decisions they'd made. Well, so I think there's two different things going on here, right? One is the question of how it is that these kinds of institutions arose that don't really respond to popular views. And then the other is about a sort of 
economic consensus we've had for a while that is now being challenged, right? So, so look, on the first point, um, I, I think there's two sort of easy things to say about it, and they're both wrong. I mean, one thing to say about these institutions is that they are a sort of elite conspiracy that's just out to con the people, and all we need is for a good set of populists to arise, you know, abolish a bunch of these institutions, right? I mean, for the United Kingdom to get out of the European Union, um, for people to, uh, you know, get rid of all of these kinds of, you know, quangos, as they're called in, in Britain or independent agencies in the States, um, return power to the people and everything is good. But I think that underplays the, the serious reasons for which a lot of these institutions arose, right? I mean, we live in an incredibly complex economy and society in which, for example, we need to make sure that the power plants uh, we run are actually safe and you need experts involved in the decision. We now face the tremendous challenge of climate change, and there's broad consensus between environmentalists and economists, actually the one thing they can agree on, that in order to deal with that effectively, you'll have to have cooperation across the globe from close to 200 countries. Um, well, how are you going to get that other than through complicated negotiations in which it'll be really difficult for you and me to feel but we still have a real voice in what happens. So I think a lot of these institutions are actually there for you know quite deep reasons. So to say, hey, you know what, let's just abolish them is not a realistic solution. Now, I think on the other side, there's a lot of people who say, well, because these institutions play an important purpose, they're legitimate and we shouldn't worry about the fact that they're not very responsive to people's views. I think that's also wrong. Um, there's a deep dilemma here to which there's no easy solution. That's the first point. I mean, the second point is, I want to distinguish a little bit between, um, you know, the sense that the future belongs to liberal democracy and, you know, a consensus about a particular set of economic policies. Um, you know, you mentioned Francis Fukuyama, and, and I think it's always a great shame that so many people sort of know the title of his book, which seems a little bit silly in retrospect, um, but few people have actually read the book. And it's a very good book. And he doesn't say that we have to stop being social democrats. He doesn't say that we all have to get on board with a particular set of economic policies that came to be dominant in the Anglo-American world uh, from the 1980s. And he actually expresses a kind of consensus, which uh, lots of people who sort of laughed at his book title agreed with as well. Look, when I grew up, I assumed certainly that, you know, obviously there are some democracies in relatively poor countries that hadn't been in place for a long time, but might not be stable. Right now, democracy is struggling for its survival in Kenya, for example, which is tragic because it's an important country, um, but it's not that surprising. We assumed that some of our Taran countries might never transition to being democracies, that China might continue to be stable. Um, and, and that was concerning, but again, not so surprising. Um, but we also believed that democracy in countries like Ireland, in countries like Germany, where I grew up, in countries like the United States was safe. But 20, 30, 40 years from now, obviously these countries would still be democratic. Um, in, in the words of one famous political science paper from the 1990s, once you had a couple of changeovers of government for free and fair elections, once you've reached a GDP per capita of about $14,000 in today's terms, democracy was consolidated. It was safe. Now, that assumption structured all of our politics, and the absolutely remarkable thing about the last years is that it's being caught in doubt. In a country like Hungary, which started as a form of illiberal democracy, which started as a form of democracy without rights, 
in which a populist said, I alone speak for the people, so let's not take rights for refugees, let's not take rights for uh, Sinti in Roma, let's not take rights for people who disagree with the government too seriously. Um, slowly, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, has taken on so much power and has started to rig the electoral system so much that the last elections, according to most outside observers, were somewhat free but barely fair. In other words, we now have a first case that's recorded in history of a country that had changed government for free and fair elections a couple of times, but does have a GDP per capita of over $14,000, where democracy is now at best seriously imperiled and at worst already gone. Um, that isn't just news or wouldn't have just been news to Francis Fukuyama in the 1990s. It would have been news to most citizens, most journalists, most mainstream political scientists as well. So what does that mean for, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a shocking fact, which I think people would have been absolutely astonished by if you told them, you know, even 10 years ago, that that was going to happen to a country which had been, as you say, a democracy for, for a generation and was a fully paid up member of the European Union with all the requirements, supposedly, that that, that, that imposes in terms, of, in terms of laws and regulations. What does that tell us about the way that, that the, the world is going? Well, so first of all, it just tells us how dangerous these new populists are. I think there's an assumption a lot of people still make that this is sort of a fad. It's, 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 it's a weird moment in our politics. But first of all, it's sure to retreat. And secondly, you know, once these populists come into power and fail to deliver on their promises, people will become wise to them and reject them and return to a slightly more ordinary um, kind of politics. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening. If you remember Winston Churchill's famous speech that an iron curtain is descending from Staten to Trieste, you can now actually drive from Staten in the Baltic Sea um, in the north of the continent much further south to Athens in the Aegean and never leave a country ruled by populists. So I think what we need to understand is that there is now um, a kind of ideological alternative to liberal democracy which builds itself as an illiberal democracy, which builds itself as a place in which a populist leader really speaks for the people, really channels their political views, finally makes a political system responsive. But because these populists usually um, disrespect the rule of law and the separation of powers because they start to victimize unpopular minorities, over time they bundle so much power in their own hands that it becomes impossible to displace somebody who's been democratically elected by democratic means. And that means that the uh, peril of dictatorship is very much alive in the heart of our continent. I'm, I'm interested that you mention Athens. Do you see, I've, we've talked to thinkers on this podcast before who describe a relative equivalence between populism of the left and populism of the right. Do you see the uh, Syrizas and Podemoses and the Linkas and the Mélenchon in France. Do you see those figures as being essentially a kind of a mirror, mirror image or is there an equivalence between those and um, right-wing authoritarian populists, nativists? Uh, so for me, so the definition of populism is not whether you're left-wing or right-wing. I think it's quite obvious that there are some cases of quite dangerous left-wing populism when you think, for example, of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and the terrible state uh, the country is now in. Um, the question is, neither is the question, you know, do you have robustly left-wing economic policies? I think we're picking governments and political candidates who have strongly left-wing economic policies who I wouldn't consider 
to be populists. You know, somebody like Elizabeth Warren in the United States would be an example of that. Um, the question for me is, do you accept the legitimacy of the political opposition? So let me give you an example uh, from the 2008 presidential campaign in the United States. A few days before the election, um, John McCain was campaigning in a sort of town hall, and uh, uh, you know, a slightly older woman stood up and said, you know, Barack Obama is an Arab and he's dangerous, and I'm scared for my country if he becomes president. And John McCain said, to his great and lasting honor, um, you know what, I, I disagree with lots of things with Barack Obama. I think I'd make a much better president. It's really important that he vote for me and that, that I win. But you know what, um, Barack Obama is an honorable man. And if he becomes president of the United States, you don't have to be concerned for your country. Um, that's a, a really important distinction between somebody who uh, is firmly on the ground of democratic values and somebody who is willing to uh, jeopardize them. And there are definitely some left-wing populist movements, um, and, and again, Uwe Chavez, I think, is the obvious example, um, that violate that, that quite clearly say, everybody who disagrees with me is illegitimate, and quite predictably, that has often led to real attacks on things like the rule of law and the separation of powers. So I am very concerned in countries where I see those movements being very strong. Um, the regimes that result are not much more pleasant than the right-wing populist regimes we see in places like Hungary. Now, I do think that there's one important thing to point out here, which is that for reasons I don't entirely understand, but I think have something to do with the deeper recesses of the human psyche, um, in most contexts in which we've seen a left-wing populism go up against a right-wing populism, it has been the right-wing populism that has won. So even if you're tempted by certain forms of left-wing populism, I think it's worth bearing the fact in mind that in the end, when one guy says, blame corporations and blame the system, and another guy says, hey, blame that guy over there who doesn't look like you, a lot of your fellow citizens are unfortunately going to fall into the second category and find it easier to blame the guy who doesn't look like you. So when left-wing and right-wing populism clash, most of the time historically, right-wing populism has won out. Why is that, do you think? I think human beings have a very deep instinct, which we've seen uh, in primitive societies, which we've seen in you know, early modern societies, medieval societies, and which we still see in many ways today, to draw a distinction between an in-group and an out-group. Um, and any project of an honorable politics has to involve the attempt of overcoming that to some degree. I think one of the best ways we can overcome that today is to fight for an inclusive patriotism. The nation itself is actually an attempt to overcome the boundaries of a more uh, limited community. It's a way of saying, you know what, you can be Irish whether you are white or whether you are black. You can be Irish even whether you're Catholic or you're Protestant. And I think that that is a really important thing that nationalism can actually do. But what we need to fight for is that, that nationalism ends up being inclusive rather than exclusive. That people accept that, you know what, there's immigrants in our societies, and um, so we might have a special solidarity towards them as opposed to some other people in the world. 
we treat them with the same solidarity as we would somebody who's quote-unquote ethnically Irish or Italian or, or German. Um, and that to me seems to be one of the best hopes we have to manage uh, the, the innate instinct that a lot of human beings have to um, prefer the kin and the co-religionists and the family over people with whom at first sight they have less in common. I, I just wonder, listening to you, and you know, you're um, you're you're a, a German Jewish person who is now a uh, I, I think a naturalized American citizen. Also, the, there was quite a lot of debate during the American presidential election about these two visions of America. One is America is an idea, an idea of individual liberty and um, self actualization and the rule of law and the Bill of Rights, uh, and the other was an idea of America as a place for a certain people, a mission. I may be oversimplifying here, but a sort of a Christian white mission, essentially. And that those those were represented by the red and blue sides of the argument in the United States. Most European countries, where you and I kind of grew up, the nation state is largely allied to usually a fairly false but quite compelling narrative of a people who share a language or perhaps a language and a religion or something else and, and some notional shared history. Um, in the modern 21st century, that doesn't really cut it anymore, does it? Um, well, right. I think this is one of the big challenges that we're facing. So, you know, when you're asking yourself, how is it that politics seem to be relatively stable um, in Europe? I mean, obviously, you know, it's easy to overstate that stability and in a country like Ireland, it's quite obvious that there was, um, you know, some uh, uh, real historical conflicts that still had to be resolved in, in a way that wasn't at all straightforward. Um, but when you look at the entirety of the continent, said, well, politically, in terms of the kinds of political parties that had power, there seemed to be all of the stability, and now suddenly uh, you see that stability give way. Um, well, I think that, you know, to explain that, you need a, a set of factors that apply to most of those countries, and that didn't just start two years ago, but have been at play for uh, a good number of decades. And and in the book, The People vs. Democracy, I argue that one of those is an economic stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens, where we just don't give people the kind of rapid transformation in their the quality of life that, uh, say, a generation of people in Ireland who are now 50 or 60 or 70 still experienced in their own lifetime. The second is the rise of social media that makes it much easier for extreme voices to rise in our politics. But the third really squarely speaks to what you were just asking about. And that is um, the fact that you go back to 1960 and you ask somebody, for example, in Ireland, who makes a true Irishman? And the same thing could be said about Germany or about Sweden or about any number of other European countries. The answer would have been relatively straightforward. Well, it's somebody who descends from the same ethnic stock, somebody who's ethnically uh, Irish, and at that time, presumably in Ireland, most people would also have said, it's definitely somebody who's Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. Now, over the last 50 or 60 years, we've started to change that kind of legal conception. I mean, when you look at a country like Germany, it was essentially impossible for people to become German citizens unless they were ethnically descended from Germans uh, or married to Germans until essentially the early 1990s. Now you can come as an immigrant and, you know, after eight or so years, you can become a citizen. That's a real transformation. Um, and that transformation is cultural as well. People have started to accept that, you know what, yes, somebody um, 
can have Polish ancestors and live in Ireland for a while, and eventually they'll, they'll be Irish and the children will be Irish. Somebody can come from um, India or from, from Nigeria and move to Ireland, and if they've lived here for a long time and if the children were born here, then they're Irish, right? You see, I suppose um, the thing is, Yasha, though, I, I like that idea is appealing to me and that is an idea that those are ideas which I hold myself to be true and I think that, that, that you do too. But at this moment with the heightened economic stagnation and the economic uncertainty which which, which comes along with that, that, that notion is, is under severe pressure and interrogation, isn't it, both in the United States and across Europe and in other countries? You no, know, absolutely it is. I mean, look, what I would say is that... Um, we have no choice other than to make it work. I mean, what ultimately are the realistic scenarios? If you really wind up with uh, European countries rejecting the idea of a multi-ethnic nation, what do you do with the many, many people who don't fit that uh, ethnic bill who are already in the country? Do you revoke their citizenship? Do you give them a kind of second-class citizenship where they are a member of a discriminated underclass for the next 500 years? Do you try and expel them from your country? I mean, what is the realistic alternative here? Given where we are at today in Europe, the only way to make it work is uh, to find a real way of living together. And there, I think, you know, the right face is a choice. And that choice is ultimately between a country that um, will never truly be at peace of itself and a country where they accept the idea that newcomers can come to be true members of a nation and you hold out some hope for a real social peace. And I think the left, by the way, has a choice as well, which is, and you know, as a Jew who grew up in Germany, that aspiration in some ways come, comes naturally to me. Um, that's this old temptation of saying, well, let's just get rid of nationalism. Perhaps we should just, um, you know, transcend those kinds of uh, commitments because we live in a more globalized world and because we sort of care about people equally. And, 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 and I think that that's a mistake as well. But in the end, if you just, you know, nationalism is this half wild beast. And if you just leave it on its own, the worst kinds of people are going to come and stoke and prod it and make it run wild. And instead, we need to fight for what it means to be Irish, for example, and say, of course, that's meaningful. And of course, our history is meaningful. And of course, um, you know, we have more solidarity with each other than to people in a distant part of the world. But all of the people who already live in the country um, really have to be a part of that. I think, by the way, that, that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, with whom I have a whole bunch of disagreements, but, but, but I think he expressed this very, very well in a campaign speech in Marseille, when he said, you know, when I look into the audience, I see people from the Ivory Coast and from Mali and from Algeria and from Italy and from Poland. But what do I see? I see the people of Marseille. What do I see? I see the people of France. Look here, ladies and gentlemen, of the Front National, the party of Marine Le Pen. This is what it looks like to be proud to be French. That, to me, seems to be a good way of, of, of taking on board nationalism and fighting for making a more inclusive version of it work.
Is it possible then, accepting all that, which I do, by the way, um, that what we're seeing at the moment is, and, and I've heard some people suggest this, this is the kind of the sting of the dying wasp, that this is a backlash. You know, we heard, we've heard so much in the United States, for example, over the last few years about how uh, it will soon become a, white, a minority white country for the, for the first time in its history. We hear that there are inevitable demographic changes across Europe as well, driven by an ageing population, by increased mobility across the world and so on and so forth. But the reality at the political level in terms of the people who have a right to vote in many of these countries is that if they take take against what you've just been describing and what Emmanuel Macron was describing, they still have the electoral power to force it back, for the moment at least. So I, I wish that I believed that it was obvious that you know, young people are across the board more tolerant and that they are more invested in democratic institutions and that they reject those kinds of populist appeals. What we see is big generational differences on some social issues. Um, you know, acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage, for example, is much higher among young people. In populists in countries like the Netherlands, who say it is precisely because we want a tolerant country that doesn't discriminate against gay people, but we have to leave all of these dangerous Muslims who are all incapable of tolerance, quote-unquote, out, right? Um, so we can't uh, simply, as many political analysts, as many political scientists, by the way, do, uh, point to the fact of growing social tolerance of certain forms and say, therefore, this populist moment uh, will pass. Um, so what we see when we actually look at the world is that young people have pretty good reason to be disenchanted with political systems. It's often young people who have the greatest economic worries because they have to um, find apartments or houses in places where uh, prices of real estate has, have skyrocketed in the last decades. Because in Southern Europe, you know, they are the ones who can't find a job because the pension system subsidizes older people so much that it's really hard to actually um, uh, hire people, right? Um, and, and you see that, that sure, in the United Kingdom and the United States, um, it was older people who voted for Donald Trump. It was older people who voted for the UK to leave the European Union. Um, but in many European countries, young people have voted for populists much more than older people. So what are the solutions to this, Yasha? It strikes me listening to you that there, there are economic issues, demographic issues, issues of political systems themselves and how they, how they interact with people's rights, uh, maybe issues, more even profound philosophical issues about how we think about our societies. Uh, where do we start? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think we need to recognise that there are these deep long-term drivers of populism and that means that uh, a lot of our response has to be deep and long-term as well. So there's obviously a tactical element. Uh, you know, once populists are in power, it's very difficult to um, stop them from uh, undermining our liberal institutions. And so we need to make sure that even when the establishment party is not perfect, even when perhaps it's not inspiring, we actually do what we can to keep populists out of power. There's many countries in Europe where we're now on the cusp of power. There's many countries where we're up for re-election for the first time, like in the United States, and historical experience shows that the opposition usually has a good chance of winning against when they first are up for re-election. But once they've been re-elected a couple of times, um, they skew the playing field more and more until it becomes essentially impossible for the opposition to win. And we've seen that in Hungary um, at the last elections. Um, so there's all these tactical things which are important, but there's also strategic 
things. There's also a strategic element. And the main point of a strategic element is that we need to undercut the structural drivers of a rise of populism. Now, as I've been talking about, one of those is about trying to fight for an inclusive notion of nationalism. Um, we've talked a little bit about that. The second is absolutely to tackle the economic stagnation that a lot of citizens feel. And here I think the answers aren't straightforwardly ideologically from one side of a political spectrum or another. Um, we need to make sure that companies actually pay a fair share of tax, something by the way that they don't always do in Ireland. We need to make sure that it's much harder for individuals to hide the money in tax havens and that when they do, they face a much higher risk of going to prison than we do right now. Uh, European countries, by the way, should follow the lead of the United States in telling all of its citizens to pay tax in their home countries so that when uh, you know billionaires and multimillionaires spend 185 days a year on a beach in the Bahamas, that's wonderful and I hope they have fun, but they still have to pay real tax somewhere. So there's a whole set of questions of equity and of raising the money the state needs to sustain the welfare state that is very important. There's also, however, an important field of actually raising productivity. Um, what we've seen in the last decades is that rising inequality has uh, driven down or, or led to a stagnation of living standards for a lot of citizens. But an even bigger driver actually is uh, the stagnation of productivity levels. If we'd had as fast rises in productivity for the last decades as we did in the post-war era, people would be about twice as rich now. Um, and so we need to invest much more heavily in education, much more heavily in lifelong learning as well. In many countries right now, lifelong learning means if you've just lost your job, you might get a little bit of help from the state to retrain. But we should be uh, having real educational offers for people who are at the top of the game, for people who are in a good job but need to keep up with new technology, with new skills in the field in order to actually be as productive as they can be. And the third is making sure that people don't spend so much of their money on life's necessities. When you look at uh, pre-tax income, it doesn't look great. When you look at post-tax income, it actually looks somewhat better because there, there are a lot of redistributive measures that, that are in place in, in most European countries and even in the United States. But when you look at disposable income, which is to say once you, dis, the, um, once you subtract uh, what people spend on, on health, on education, and especially on housing, things look really dire. And, and one thing we need to do to change that is, for example, simply to build a lot more housing units, some of which can be social housing, some of which uh, can be private uh, uh, developments. But at the moment, we are artificially limiting the amount of living space we have in our countries, and that leads to people who are living in more rural areas, being locked out of economic opportunities because they can't access the economic centers where there is real economic dynamism. And the people who do live in those economically dynamic areas spending a vast share of their income just in order to have a decent place to live. So that a lot of young people now say, you know what, even if I do get a decent job in my 20s and I go and, and actually um, you know, do something meaningful and lucrative in Dublin, I'm never going to have the standard of living that my parents had because I'm never going to be able to afford a flat. Um, and that's something we can do something about. Now, it sounds to me that those measures, all of which seem to make quite a lot of sense, sense to me, could broadly be described as good 
in some ways traditional common sense social democratic me- measures that take on vested interests and the wealthy in the interests of the in the in the interest of the broader population and we've seen very little of that over the last few years. In fact, one of the phenomena we've seen alongside the rise of populism is the collapse of traditional social social democratic parties across Europe in particular. So how optimistic could we, can we be that a programme of this sort, a, for, for want of a better phrase, a popular grassroots movement that would be required to implement those kind of changes will come to pass? Well, one of the interesting things about the collapse of social democracy across Europe, which, which as you're saying, is, is really striking, um, uh, and doesn't right now seem to be reversible, so you know you should never predict the future. Um, but one of the striking elements of it is that it hasn't actually gone hand in hand with a reduced commitment to the welfare state. Most European publics continue to be very willing to spend money on the welfare state, uh, and in fact, a lot of the populists who are taking votes from social democratic parties um, aren't that much less committed to the welfare state. Uh, than the social democratic parties were. So I think there's still a broad social consensus, at least in Europe, in favor of those kinds of social protections. Um, so I'm not quite as pessimistic on that as as, as you are. But, but um, attacking something like the vested interests in the in the property area which you describe, or indeed the tax shelter area you describe, two two examples of of things that would need to be need to be addressed. Yeah, to me, actually, some of those challenges are less ideological than they are one of understanding the urgency of the situation and actually having some imagination. When I look at a lot of social democratic parties across Europe, I think, yeah, they have the right values. I, for many years, was a member of a German social democratic party, so I um, decided to leave the party for various reasons a few years ago. uh, so I certainly, you know, see my values as aligned with those parties, but I don't think the Social Democratic Party in Germany has any particularly courageous ideas for how to deal with this political situation. And it's less because I think they've sought out the values or anything like that. It's simply because, you know, they're scooting on the things they've always done and thinking, well, you know, let's just continue with business as usual. So uh, it takes a little bit of courage in the political class and an understanding that a whole bunch of things will have to change in order for the most fundamental things we care about to stay the same um, that, that that I see as missing in action. Does that require um, new political parties then? It might do. Um, and certainly we've seen that there is an opening, uh, whatever you think, for example, of Macron for political parties that aren't, uh, you know, on the face of it, uh, populist or dangerous uh, to come in and, and, and attract a lot of support. Um, it can also be a renewal of existing political parties. Um, I sort of don't particularly care in the end who takes up my ideas, as long as there's somebody who says, look, um, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel completely here. Um, The mixture between liberalism and democracy in the welfare state has served us well. We just need to realize that in order to make those things work in a world in which, uh, as you're saying, a lot of special interests have captured the political process and in which we face globalization and big global changes, uh, we actually need to live up with the courage of our convictions to the promises that we've long made. Um, And that means, by the way, standing up to places like Hungary, where there's a dictatorship developing in the heart of European Union and most European politicians simply pretend that this isn't happening and congratulate Viktor Orban on his supposedly fair and square political victory. So it means standing up for our values 
um, in the international realm, but it also means standing up for our values at home and taking a good look around and saying, you know what, it, it never quoted well principle that rich people can go and hide their money in tax havens. That simply happened uh, because we we haven't understood the full scale of a problem, and when we did, we were a little unimaginative in what to do about it. So let's get to work on that. Yes, Monk, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Insight Politics. Thanks to Yasha Monk for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that you can always find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast or you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. Your views are always very welcome. You can get me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.